Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Emily Gregg. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our Institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Dr. Chris Parada, an associate professor and researcher at the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who's also affiliated with the Biomedical Engineering Department at Wake Forest. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good morning. So we know that you received your bachelor's degree in molecular biology from Colgate University and your PhD in cellular and molecular pharmacology and physiology from the University of Nevada, where you focused on fetal gene therapy for the treatment of hematologic diseases. We're wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this thesis work and how it has progressed and maybe what are some of the, uh, what's its potential for being able to treat um, hematologic diseases. Sure. Um, so when I did my undergraduate degree in molecular biology, um, molecular biology was still kind of an early field, <laughs> um, which I guess reveals how long ago I went to school, but um, I was one of only two people that majored in molecular biology at wow. Colgate at the time. Um, and basically, uh, people had come up with the ideas of recombinant DNA and manipulating things, and people were starting to propose that this could ultimately be used for therapy, but gene therapy didn't really exist or was kind of in its infancy at that point. Um, and taking classes and learning about recombinant DNA, I was really excited with that and realized I wanted to be part of that field and using knowledge of the genome and the ability to manipulate it to try to go in and try to treat diseases. Um, so my PhD, actually, I um, found an advisor who specialized in, uh, in utero stem cell transplantation um, and also had an interest in potentially using that type of fetal approach to um, treat diseases with a genetic basis using gene modification. So he was excited about my background in molecular biology and um, genetic engineering. So uh, the initial work that we focused on for my thesis was um, to try to use retroviral vectors um, as a means of delivering um, exogenous genes into the developing fetus. Mm -hmm. um, and we worked with a sheep model um, based on the physiologic similarity between sheep and human um, I mean, you may look at a sheep and say it doesn't really look anything <laughs> like a person, but um, it turns out during development, uh, there are actually a lot of very important similarities in the development of the hematopoietic system um, and also the development of the immunologic system in the sheep um, when you compare that to human. Um, so for my thesis work, um, at that time, gene therapy was still kind of in its infancy, and uh, the only uh, techniques people had come up with that worked relatively efficiently we're using retroviruses as a means of trying to transfer foreign genes into cells. Um, I mean, people realized there were probably some risks with using retroviruses, but um, it turns out Mother Nature is actually pretty hard to top, and viruses have evolved for millennia, basically with the sole purpose of taking their genetic material and putting it into cells so that they can replicate themselves. So mm -hmm. um, the approach that we took was um, to take retroviral vectors that we had engineered so that they were replication defective. So basically, this is a virus that um, no longer had any viral genes. We had replaced those only with genes that we wanted. Um, and one of the key things with trying to treat <coughs> diseases before birth is that um, we were targeting initially uh, hematologic diseases, as Josh mentioned, and also um, looking at lysosomal storage diseases um, like Tay-Sachs or Lesch-Nyhan uh, or Gaucher disease. Um, because those are some of the diseases that uh, even if we were to come up with a curative treatment after birth, um, we would never be able to reverse 
um, basically damage that's occurred to the uh, brain and the nervous system during development. So um, we wanted to come up with an approach that was technically um, fairly straightforward so that we could do it very early in gestation before any of that neurologic damage had occurred. Um, the interesting, one of the other interesting things that came out of my um, thesis work was that, um, not surprisingly, if you take a viral vector and inject it directly into an animal, the it was nice that we modified the hematopoietic system, but there wasn't really any reason to believe modification would be specific to the hematopoietic system. So we showed that um, many of the other tissues in the fetus were also modified um, at the same time, and we were fairly excited about that. For instance, we showed um, we could get very high levels of gene transfer to the liver. So we thought this might be a way um, of treating liver diseases before birth as well, and also um, ultimately looking ahead kind of to one of the current projects that um, Grasso and I have on hemophilia. Um, the liver is the primary site of production of coagulation factors, so we're, we were quite excited with the high expression in the liver because we thought this might be an approach we could use for hemophilia. Very exciting, very exciting work. Mm -hmm. um, so after your graduate work, uh, we know you did a postdoc at the Department of Medicine mm -hmm. um, at the VA Medical Center in Reno. Um, and it seems like you focused on stem cell biology and the immune aspects of gene delivery there. Mm -hmm. Looking at hemophilia as an example, one of the main problems with treating patients currently that have hemophilia mm -hmm. um, is that basically uh, the protein that you're giving them to try to correct their bleeding disorder is a protein that their body has never seen before. So in a high percentage of patients, after you've infused them a couple times with this protein, their immune system actually recognizes the protein that's basically saving their life and preventing them from bleeding um, as a foreign protein then makes antibodies to it um, so the therapy stops working. Mm. So one of the really neat things about being able to do um, either gene delivery or stem cell transplantation or um, other procedures uh, early enough in gestation, you can actually go into the fetus before the immune system has fully developed um, and trick the immune system into thinking the things that you're putting in the fetus are part of itself. So the immune system becomes educated to view either the cells or the foreign proteins that you've put in um, as part of its own self-repertoire. So um, my postdoc, I was focused mainly on that, trying to figure out whether it was possible to use in utero gene delivery to induce tolerance to foreign proteins, um, because obviously for diseases like hemophilia, if you could treat that before birth and put the protein in, even if you didn't cure the disease, even if you had very, very small levels of the protein, it would be sufficient um, to induce immunologic tolerance. So at least once the patient was born, uh, you would have eliminated one of the major clinical problems with treating hemophilia right now, which is the formation of the inhibitory antibodies. Right. So now, um, with working at Wake Forest as an associate professor, we know that your research is focused on development of safer, more uh, cost-effective treatments that could offer permanent cures for a variety of genetic disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those areas of interest uh, is with NASA. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to define the effects of space radiation on the hemophiliac system of astronauts and assessing risk of um, leukemogenesis uh, as a result of space travel. So we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you know, how you first got <laughs> interested in that um, and what it's like working with NASA and thinking about space travel, which to <laughs> me still seems very futuristic. Mm -hmm. but. Um, obviously, if we want to be able to have um, manned missions to Mars and whatnot, mm -hmm. we need to be able to understand the effects of space radiation um, on stem cells. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, how did you first get, get, well, in, sure. get interested in um, this? So, yeah, this seems to be kind of the <coughs> far afield of my other expertise in molecular <laughs> biology. But 
Um, actually, since I was a really small kid, um, outer space and space travel has been kind of one of my passions. Um, I remember when I was 10 and had a paper route as my first job, I saved up for about two or three years and um, used the money to buy myself a telescope so um, I could go outside and start looking at the sky. Um, and I grew up watching uh, Cosmos with Carl Sagan, of course, which it's pretty hard not to get enthusiastic listening to someone <laughs> like that um, <laughs> talking. So uh, for quite a while, I mean, I guess when I went to college, um, physics wasn't really my forte, so I never saw how it was that I could transition into um, working on space travel and things like that. But um, it turns out that NASA in the last oh, probably um, 15 or 20 years has, start, has started, um, uh, they established their human research program, uh, which has the goals of trying to determine what the risks um, to human beings will be as a result of space travel. So studying things like space radiation um, or conditions of zero gravity, which are things that don't exist on Earth. So really, we don't have any understanding what that may do to the human body. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw that that might be my opportunity to kind of fulfill a lifelong dream and be able to start <laughs> interacting and working with NASA. Um, so one of the big interests that NASA has, obviously, is... Um, the possibility that astronauts may be at an increased risk of cancer as a result of exposure to space radiation. Yeah. Um, and space radiation is a pretty um, interesting thing. It's completely different than any radiation that exists on Earth. Um, and the reason for that is the Earth is protected by both the atmosphere and also a magnetic field that basically shields everyone on the planet from um, the two primary types of space radiation, which are solar particle events or solar energetic particles and um, galactic cosmic ray radiation. Um, and NASA really doesn't have any data on astronauts that have been exposed to those things because um, basically no one has traveled far enough from the Earth to receive a significant dose of either of those radiations. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, uh, at least to me, I find it astonishing that people this long ago actually understood these things and thought about it. But um, my understanding until recently was that astronauts in the Apollo missions that went to the moon would obviously have been far enough from the Earth to go outside the magnetic field and they should have been exposed to space radiation, but it turns out physicists at NASA had actually calculated um, the orbit of the moon around the Earth isn't perfectly circular. And they timed the Apollo missions so that the moon was actually at its closest proximity to the Earth and was still protected by the magnetic field of the Earth. So the astronauts weren't wow. exposed to space radiation. Um, and of course we have astronauts on uh, the International Space Station um, but they're still close enough to the Earth that they're largely protected from space radiation as well. Um, so mm. now NASA is very interested in trying to go um, to Mars, I think they're saying, by 2030. And uh, Elon Musk is saying that he would like to get there, I think, five years before NASA <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually try to colonize the planet, which I don't think NASA has started thinking about yet. They're still worried about getting there. But um, uh, And in the interim, I think they're planning um, kind of test missions or pilot missions that they're going to fly to near-Earth asteroids or perhaps um, try to establish a colony on the moon as uh, kind of a test case to see what it would be like to send humans somewhere right. far away from Earth and mm -hmm. let them stay there for a while. Um, so uh, I was saying that the radiation is quite different. So um, at this point, NASA, one of the problems with their models, they can't really accurately predict what the risk will be because the only data they have or one of the primary data sets uh, sets is the atomic bomb survivors um, that they've been going and looking at that but that's traditional gamma radiation um, and what our studies and a lot of other people that have been working on these things with NASA have shown is that um, space radiation because of the fact that it's a completely different entity and it's a much higher energy and the, mm -hmm. the particles are much different 
um, cells actually respond a lot differently to that than terrestrial gamma radiation. So um, the models that they're using probably aren't accurately predicting what the risk will be. Mm. Um, so we chose um, both on based on the background that I had in the hematopoietic system uh, and also um, so we chose to focus on leukemia for two reasons, because of my background in uh, the hematopoietic system and also um, because looking at the different types of cancer that could develop as a result of radiation, um, looking, for instance, at the atomic bomb survivors, leukemias were one of the predominant cancers that uh, arose as a result of radiation exposure. Um, on top of that, um, leukemias are one of the few cancers that have a short enough latency period that if you think about a mission to Mars that would take about three years as a round trip, if they were exposed to um, high energy radiation and it induced mutations that could lead to leukemia, mm -hmm. it could actually develop and progress within that three year period so that the astronauts had full blown leukemia during the mission and the mission would be compromised and basically they would be stuck in outer space without any way of being treated. Mm -hmm. So that was our reason for focusing on um, leukemia and NASA has actually listed leukemias as kind of one of their key risk areas that they realize is probably something that is gonna have to be addressed. Um, they're also looking at um, brain uh, cancer as well, brain tumors, and things like that. But those are more kind of long-term risks for astronauts that are on a mission. Once they come back, then they may these risks may pop up later in life. So, yeah. one question you may have if you think of um, terrestrial gamma radiation, like people that work with uh, X-rays or in imaging labs and things like that. Basically, you put on a lead apron or things like that when mm. you go to the dentist and mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. protects you from radiation. So one of the obvious questions is why don't they just put shielding on the spaceship and then the astronauts would be safe. Um, the problem with that is that um, galactic cosmic ray radiation, the particles have such high energy. If you put shielding, you actually make the problem worse because the particles impinge and collide with nuclei inside the shielding material and release secondary radiation. So uh. at this point, NASA hasn't... Um, come up with a way that they could build a shield that would effectively protect astronauts. They figured out ways of protecting them from solar activity because those, that's high energy protons. So the shielding that they have works pretty well for that. So um, they're not too concerned about solar flares and things like that unless the astronauts happen to be out on an um, extravehicular uh, yeah. maneuver spacewalk. or something like that on a mm -hmm. spacewalk when the flare comes through. But generally they have enough warning that they could tell them get back in and the space station actually has um, kind of a protective cocoon area that they tell the astronauts to go into if they know that there's going to be a lot of solar activity. Um, but the galactic cosmic radiation is <laughs> kind of a huge problem that they're realizing they need to understand what the biology is. And basically now um, what NASA would like first is to understand what the risk is. And secondly, for people to come up with countermeasures or um, drugs or dietary supplements or things that they can give to the astronauts, realizing the risk is there, what can we give to the astronauts to try to reduce or mitigate that risk. So yeah. we're also working on, in addition to showing that um, space radiation negatively affects, affects the hematopoietic system, we've also started working on um, a dietary supplement that we showed has the ability to protect hematopoietic stem cells from many of the effects of space radiation. Wow. So we've submitted a grant that we're hoping <laughs> gets funded so that we can continue that work to try to develop that. Just out of curiosity, once you actually get to Mars, does is Mars protected in the same way that Earth is? So is it just the transport through space where we have to worry about these these different types of, of radiation and once they get to Mars, they wouldn't necessarily have to have the same degree of, of protection? Um, no, so unfortunately Mars is different. Uh. 
from the Earth. So <laughs> actually, that's a um, NASA has sent multiple probes to Mars to try to figure out. So Mars, they think, um, or at least I think Carl Sagan's idea was Mars originally was um, kind of similar to Earth um, because it still has polar caps and water. And I think um, the question is what happened to it, why it lost its entire atmosphere and its magnetic field was destroyed because they want to understand why that happened to make sure basically it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen on Earth because <laughs> otherwise we're, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, so uh, actually the physics is kind of interesting of the radiation. So while the astronauts are traveling through space, um, one of the different things about galactic cosmic ray radiation from terrestrial radiation is it doesn't really come in a beam. Basically it'll be coming from every direction. So 360 degrees particles will be coming from everywhere hitting the astronauts. Once they land on Mars, um, then basically the particles will only be coming from 180 degrees because the planet will shield them on mm. the underside. So the dose is um, dropped in half as a result of being on the surface, but it's still a pretty significant dose. Oh. And one of, the, one of the big problems is um, I think for quite a while NASA has had the technology to get people to Mars. The question is how we can get them back again because <laughs> basically you would have to carry enough fuel to be able to come back, and mm-hmm. I don't think they've figured out a way they can launch a ship that's can carry that, that kind heavy. of weight. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know they've discussed the possibility of actually trying to build or assemble the ship in like low Earth orbit so that it's outside part of the gravitational field and could launch from there somehow. Going mm-hmm. back to um, your work with Hemophilia A, uh, you were recently awarded the um, RI1 grant mm-hmm. on Hemophilia A. So can you give our listeners some background on Hemophilia A and what your strategy is for this particular funded grant? Mm-hmm. Um, so hemophilia A is um, the most common inherited coagulation defect. So it's um, a genetic disease that causes you to um, your blood to not be able to clot properly, um, either after injury or um, even just in general kind of at rest. Um, patients with severe hemophilia A have spontaneous bleeding events, um, both internally and into their joints. Um, and over time basically develop something known as hemarthrosis, which is uh, a leakage of blood into the joint that causes a disease that's kind of similar to arthritis, but um, instead, basically, it's a joint filled with blood that's inflamed and extremely painful, and uh, you start Mm -hmm. to lose mobility. Um, So the current treatment for hemophilia A is basically to give intravenous infusions of either recombinant or plasma-derived factor VIII protein um, to the patients, and this has to be done usually about, uh, ideally, you want to treat prophylactically, um, which means basically just continually giving the protein to make sure that they maintain a steady state level of protein and don't have bleeding events. Um, and because of the short half-life of factor eight, the patients need to receive injections probably about three times a week um, for their entire life. And basically, if you miss even a single injection, your um, coagulation protein level can drop below a critical level, which means you could be at risk of a life-threatening bleed. Uh, needless to say, this is not really a great quality of life that you have to inject yourself yeah. <laughs> three and times and a week. it's also quite expensive. Well, it's, yeah, terrifyingly expensive, actually. Yeah. The um, estimates for um, a typical adult uh, would probably be somewhere in the ballpark of um, $300,000 to $500,000 a year, um, which is <laughs> just a staggering uh, financial burden. And I know um, recently, about two months ago, there was a patient trying to remember, reported somewhere in the Midwest, and I think people are still trying to figure out what's uh, happening. He got into the news because of problems he was having with his insurance. He was actually, for some reason, his therapy was costing somewhere over a million dollars a year to try to um, treat himself for hemophilia A. 
So obviously, <laughs> as far as quality of life, um, <laughs> cost and yeah. things like that, there there's definitely a need for better treatments. Um, one other problem, as I mentioned, is that even in the case that you have, I mean, unlimited <laughs> uh, pockets and resources mm -hmm. to pay for these things, you have access to the factor. Um, and you're willing to put up with injecting yourself three times per week. On top of that, about 30% of people with severe hemophilia A, if they do that, uh, as I mentioned, develop an immune response to the protein. So basically at that point, the therapy becomes either less effective or even worse, stops working altogether. Um, and at this point, there really aren't any good solutions to that problem. Um, clinicians have come up with something called immune tolerance induction, which basically, um, instead of injecting uh, protein every three days, what they found is, for some reason, um, and the curious thing is that even though this is used clinically, it's not really understood very well mechanistically. If you can completely saturate the immune system with just the gross excess of the protein, you can force it into a state of non-reactivity. So the solution they've come up with is basically to take a treatment that costs three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars a year, and <laughs> boost it up so that over the course of six months you're paying something like I don't know two or three million dollars um, because you're giving yourself multiple times what you normally would of the protein in the hopes that that tricks your immune system into basically shutting down because it mm. they can't deal with the load of protein that's coming in. Um, that does work, but um, it only works in about 60% of patients. Uh, <coughs> so and part of what... two to three million yes, dollars yes, very in expensive. the course of a few months. Wow. wow. <laughs> so um, the R01 that um, Agrasa and I just got actually um, quite excitingly is finally the culmination of probably about 20 years of kind of working towards this goal, which is um, to try to treat hemophilia before birth. Um, and the solution that we came up with was kind of combining um, Gross's expertise and my expertise, uh, her expertise in cellular therapies and mine in um, genetic modification. Uh, so instead of injecting retroviral vectors directly into the fetus, which at this point I think is still probably a long way off until we figured out ways of getting viruses that can target specific parts of the genome and we know that it's going to be safe. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. That's great. So are y'all, as part of the grant, doing clinical trials? Um, so ultimately, we've, uh, we're in the process of preparing a pre-IND um, okay. with the hopes of using this grant to do kind of the definitive preclinical study um, to set the stage for an IND. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So we also know that um, education and training is an important mission of WFIRM, and we were wondering if you could speak about some of the mentorship opportunities uh, you've been involved with here at WFIRM? Sure. Um, I enjoy mentoring students. and <laughs> um, I know the university or institute I was at before I came here, um, I also did a lot of teaching and had the opportunity to interact with undergraduates and graduate students and um, postdocs. So since I've come here, um, because it's a research institute, I don't <laughs> really do as much teaching as I did before, but um, I still interact quite frequently with graduate students. Um, we have the Summer Scholar Program, which is a fantastic yeah, thing, which exactly. um, enables us to meet all kinds of, uh, I guess, the best and brightest every year that are coming <laughs> out of some of the top schools that uh, are looking to go into either graduate school or medical school or something and want some research experience during the summer. So um, our lab has hosted uh, Summer Scholars every year, I think, since we got here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've and also had medical students that have come over that uh, were interested in having a research experience either during the summer or during mm -hmm. uh, part of their... Um, clinical years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I just think that's a fabulous way to get the those young, bright minds, um, and hopefully infect them with <laughs> with some of this exciting research. Exactly. Because 
um, it takes time. And, and so you, you want to continually uh, build that pipeline mm -hmm. of very well capable um, researchers that, that can come in and problem solve and mm -hmm. uh, provide new perspectives to uh, current uh, challenges and, and problems. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, yeah I, so I think that's <laughs> definitely very important is to keep that, that, that strong pipeline mm -hmm. going. So going even earlier than college, because I guess a lot of people would argue at college it's already a little bit too late to kind of <laughs> spark this interest, interest in science. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so um, I've also been involved in some of the outreach programs that um, Joan Shank has been organizing that we have uh, high school yep. um, teachers come in and learn about kind of the work that's going on so they can incorporate mm -hmm. that into their curriculum. And um, I've also gone to give some lectures at local high schools and things like that about gene therapy to try to... Yeah tell people kind of what's happening Start and early. see if we can get them interested. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, well, sort of as a wrap-up, um, a lot of our listeners are young scientists. Um, so what would be your takeaway message to them if they're interested in getting into regenerative medicine or even gene and cell therapy? What would you tell them? Say, so I guess, read everything you can. And <laughs> um, I guess looking back, perhaps in college it might have been nice if I had known that certain classes, even though they were really difficult, uh, the long-term rewards would outweigh the difficulty of putting up with some of the difficulties in the class. So uh, I wish, like I was saying, for instance, in physics, I never did. Uh, I mean, I did okay, but it was never really my forte in college because I think part of the problem I had was I couldn't really see mm -hmm. what I could do with that information at a later point. So I would say maybe keep an open mind and think you may not see why it's readily apparent to you at this particular moment, but try to absorb everything you can because 10 or 20 years down the road, you may say, wow, that's why that was, <laughs> they were teaching <laughs> us that. I could have done something really interesting if I had learned more about that field. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I yeah. think that's great. Well, thank you very much. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.